0: So, last Saturday, I finally committed myself to finishing the job of raking my leaves in the front yard. I know, I know. Mid-March, it's about time, Chad. Well, in, in my defense, my trees seem to simultaneously lose leaves, bud and sprout new leaves all at the same time. I don't, I don't get it, but that's just the way my trees work. So I'm, I'm raking the leaves a week ago yesterday, and I'm committed to finishing the job. There's just one problem. It was a windy day. Have you ever tried to rake leaves in the wind? It's maddening. So, you're you're raking the leaves, and you're getting them in a pile, and that's not even the hardest part. Once you get them in the pile, you have to get them in the bag. So, you try to set the bag up just so, uh, but as you get the bag up, the wind blows it over. So, you think, okay, I'm just going to hold the bag with one arm, and I'll... I'll rake up or scoop up the leaves with the rake with the other hand, and, and I'll dump the leaves in. But as you do that, the wind just blows about a third of the leaves off the top of the rake, and you're just sitting there thinking, what am I doing? This is pointless. This is hopeless. In our walks with God, do you ever feel like Living a life pleasing to Him is similar to raking leaves in the wind. That God's revealed will for our lives, that which He asks us, commands us really to do, that we are to live in accordance to us as His children, that it's like raking leaves in the wind. For many of us, we grew up memorizing the golden rule. This is an example. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's so simple to know. You've got it memorized. But how simple is it to actually apply it? So why is it? Why is this such a challenge? Why is living a life pleasing to God like raking leaves in the wind? Well... We live in a world that's spoiled by sin, with Satan slinking around, and we as believers are susceptible to both. We have still this sin within called the flesh that wants to sin. And so these three, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they act more than just a light breeze at times that kind of knock you over. Or push you back. They can seem like this straight lined wind. That will just level you. As you try to walk with God. In a manner that's pleasing to him. And this. this, The temptation. The wind is screaming at you. Life is short. Life is hard. Don't live to please him. Live to please yourself. Live to please yourself. And extract as much pleasure as you can, especially considering that death is just around the corner. So this morning, as we continue our study in 1 Thessalonians, what we are going to press into is this life pleasing to God. How do we do this? How do we live to please God while living in a world with wind that screams at us to only please ourselves, And we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to chapter 4. And as we look at chapter 4, we're going to talk about three things. Pursuing holiness, loving one another, and holding on to our hope. Pursuing Holiness, Loving One Another, and Holding On to Our Hope. So let's begin with a look at pursuing holiness by, be, by reading verse 1 of chapter 4 of First Thessalonians. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Okay, just stop with me there. So, he begins chapter 4 with this word, finally. With this word, finally, Paul is shifting his focus in 1 Thessalonians from one of simply friendship, of reconnecting with this church, to one of moral exhortation and encouragement. And he is dealing with What is lacking in their faith, which we see in chapter 3, verse 10. It won't appear on the screen behind me, but in chapter 3, verse 10, we see that Paul is writing this letter to supply what is lacking in their faith. Now, if you recall from the previous three Sundays, Paul had established this church in approximately four weeks, and then he had to leave. He was forced out due to severe persecution, and he had not yet finished teaching them basic doctrine, that is right thinking of God, nor basic practice, how to live as a Christian. And so he wanted To connect with them face to face. But Satan had hindered him in doing that. And so he wrote this letter. And in chapter 4 he's getting down to the nitty gritty of what he wants them to know. And what he wants them to do as these young believers. So pick back up with me in verse 2. And we're going to read through just the first part of verse 3. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus... For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay, stop there. So, he's making it clear for them what God's will is for them. Now, if you let that sink in that Paul is about to reveal or has revealed what God's will is for them and for us, that can be life-changing God's will for them and for us is our sanctification, or some say to be holy. So what is that? What does that mean exactly? Sanctification, or to be holy, is this process by God, the Spirit who indwells you, to become more and more dedicated to God. To become more and more like Christ in your character. It has nothing to do with this young church's position in Christ. They were secure in Christ, in his righteousness. And Paul tells us as much in verse 1. By asking and urging you in the Lord Jesus. To be in the Lord Jesus, Paul is stating we share the same sphere of righteousness in Christ. And so he's encouraging them to become who they already are in the Lord. And so looking back at verse one, he's going to map out the believers' responsibility in this process because we do. The Spirit's the one who makes us to be more and more dedicated. God more and more like Christ, but we are to cooperate. And he describes it in verse one as to walk, how you ought to walk and to please God. This is a metaphor for our conduct. And all the way back to the Old Testament, walking with God has been a metaphor that the Spirit has used to teach us about our relationship with Him. We walk with God. And we are to do it in a manner that's pleasing to Him. And if you look at the tail end of verse 1 there, we are to do so more and more. So this is one word in the Greek and it means to overflow or to abound. So this walk uh, more and more in a manner pleasing to God, it teaches us a couple things. First, none of us will ever arrive. We will all continue to be in process more and more until the Lord returns. And this more and more also teaches us that this is the direction God wants us to press into. God's will for you is your sanctification, for you to more and more be dedicated To God. That's the direction He wants each of us to walk with Him. What if we slip up, which we all do all the time? We have built in God's grace to confess our sins. In fact, many see uh, in chapter 3 here this idea, back in um, chapter 3, verse 13. Paul's prayer so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness. This concept of being blameless and holiness built in is the provision of confession for God to cleanse you of your sins and to be restored to fellowship so that you can press in and more and more dedicate yourself to the Lord. So I, I hope that... Those of you who have children had a good spring break if you did go anywhere or do anything. uh, We went and visited my mom in San Angelo and we spent a couple days in Ozona, which is in West Texas, just walking some pastures. It's one of my favorite things to do is just... Be in God's creation. And I'm thankful to have two little girls that enjoy doing it too, and a a little boy who's learning to keep up and uh, avoid cactus also. But one of the things we did is we went on treasure hunts. Now, for us, a treasure is anything that we believe God placed there for us to find and enjoy. It could be a good walking stick, Uh, it could be some flint or a fossil. But one of the things we most enjoyed finding were turkey feathers. And we found an assortment of beautiful Rio Grande turkey feathers. We found um, the the tail feathers that are nice and and wide and and soft. We we found the wing feathers that are long and, and black and white zebra stripes. And as we found these turkey feathers, my girl's face is just lit up as they were finding these treasures that God placed there for them to find and for them to enjoy. And as I saw that they were hooked on this, it pleased me because they were now willing to press on through the mesquite and the cedar and the cactus and continue to find these beautiful gifts of God and to enjoy them. For what they are, an element of God's creation glorifying Him and making Him known. And at the conclusion, they fan their feathers out, showcasing to mom and dad all the beautiful treasures they had found. In our walks with God, the Spirit of God is leading us in mercy and grace. To more clearly see sin for what it is. Just ugly and destructive. And to see the character of Christ that's in us for what it is. Beautiful, attractive, a treasure to seek, to press in, to showcase more and more of Bruce Metzger, who's a very famous New Testament theologian from the 21st century, in summary of these first three verses, has this to say To please God is simply to do his will. To please God is to do his will. And in the context of chapter four, which we're going to continue to read, we see one key aspect of his will is abstaining from sexual immorality. And so read with me verses 3 through 8 as we continue to look at a life pleasing to God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his or her own body in holiness and honor, to you. So in these verses he zeroes in on the importance of there and our abstaining from sexual immorality. And he uses this word pornea for sexual immorality in verse 3. Porneia includes any and all forms of sexual activity outside the covenant marriage of one man and one woman. Any and all forms. And a Christian's pursuit of sexual purity is inseparably tied to a life-pleasing God. And we know this innately because we have the Spirit. But Paul doesn't just say, don't do this, which I'm guilty of doing with my kids. Don't do this. Why? Because I said so. Paul wants this young church to understand why they are to abstain from sexual immorality. And we see this in verse 6. He says that no one transgress, transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. The word brother there is brother and sister. That no one transgress and wrong his brother and sister in this matter. And the word wrong means to cheat. Or to defraud. And so putting this together. Paul is explaining to this young church. That sexual immorality. Is a form of theft. That you are stealing something that does not belong to you. That you are robbing that individual. And you are robbing that individual's future spouse. And the Lord takes this very seriously. He finishes verse 6 with the stated consequences, something that he's warning them. And it's for those who are willful and unapologetically engaging in this behavior. Verse 6 says, the Lord is an avenger in these things. To avenge means he will judge, either in this life or in the life to come. Well, what if... We are engaged to be married or we're seriously discussing marriage or what if my partner in this activity is an unbeliever or is simply pixels on a computer screen? Am I clear? Well, no. This word pornea, again, any and all forms of sexual activity outside of the covenant marriage of a man and a woman and engaging in this is antithetical. To a pursuit of holiness. A life pleasing to God. A life of more and more being dedicated to God. And this holiness is Paul's concern in verses 1 through 8. Four times in these verses. He uses the word holy or holiness. He's getting the point across to us and to them. That a life pleasing to God is a life pursuing Holiness. In our present day culture, as well as in the culture of Thessalonica at this time, abstaining from sexual immorality can feel like raking leaves in the wind. Every time I commit myself to pursue purity in this matter, the wind comes and blows harder and harder and scatters all of my intentions and just frustrates me, and I'm back at square one. That day, when I was literally raking leaves on my front lawn, frustrated, leaves scattered, bags knocked over, do you know what happened that changed the whole course of that activity? My neighbor, David, completely unannounced, shows up on my front lawn, with a rake, a bunch of bags, and a really good attitude, and says, how can I help? And with David's help, we were able to finish the job and get the leaves in the bag. How does this intersect with our lives as believers struggling with sexual immorality? If you find yourself there today, did you know that every single second person pronoun in 1st Thessalonians that's you every time you see the word you in the entire book of 1st Thessalonians it is plural meaning y'all paul is not exhorting individuals to pursue holiness in isolation paul is exhorting family members believers in community to pursue holiness together my neighbor David saw me struggling saw my frustration saw the wind defeating me and showed up but the very nature of sexual sins is they are done in secret and so you brothers sisters who might find yourself struggling against the wind in this area let another brother or another sister in Let them know so that we can come alongside you and encourage you and hold you accountable in this, in love, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, that the spirit who indwells you, which Paul references in verses eight and nine, that he is leading you, that he is guiding you in this struggle and that you can break free from this. And so looking now at verses 9 through 12, we are going to briefly talk about pleasing God by loving one another. So we just talked about pleasing God by pursuing holiness with a a special focus on sexual immorality, because that's what Paul focused on. We're now going to talk about living a life pleasing to God by loving one another in Christian community. So read with me verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I'm gonna offer you just a couple observations here. The first is Paul links brotherly love in verse 9, there, which is love amongst Christians, he links that with verse 11. And verse 11 is how we are to love one another. It's to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands. And the idea here is a community of tranquility. Everyone is pitching in as they're able, and everyone is pulling in the same direction. My second observation is Paul's concern for the tranquility of this young Christian community is not for their sake alone, but for the sake of those outside the faith. And we see this in verse 12 with the purpose statement. May brotherly love increase more and more. Verse 12, so that, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, That is to be a good witness to unbelievers. And they are to do this more and more, verse 10 more and more pursue holiness, more and more pursue brotherly love for the good of the community, but also for the sake of those outside the community. How we treat one another matters beyond how you make the other person feel. How we, Bethel, treat one another matters because their opinion of Christ is shaped by how we treat one another. Are we a community that reflects who Christ is or not? So, our life pleasing to God by loving other believers more and more is for our good, but it's also missional. It's missional. Let's move to our final point this morning, which I'm sure some of you are like, finally, this is what I really want to get into. So our final point is holding on to hope. And I'm sure that by the conclusion of this sermon, you will have additional questions because I will not answer everything in this fascinating passage, but please come talk to me if you want to ask your question about the Lord's second coming. Read with me these beautiful verses, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Here Paul supplies in chapter 4 here what is lacking in their faith, knowledge, which should impact behavior. He's clearing up some misinformation regarding the future of deceased Christians and the Lord's second coming. So specifically, Paul has received a report from Timothy, who just visited this church, and the church in Thessalonica is distressed. They're stressing over deceased brothers and Christians who... Brothers and sisters in Christ who they fear might miss out on future kingdom blessings. Who might miss out on the Lord's second coming. And so Paul's going to clear that up. The question is, are the dead in Christ at a disadvantage in any way to living believers regarding the Lord's second coming and the blessings to come? Are the dead in Christ at a disadvantage? Paul's answer is a resounding No, they are not in any way at a disadvantage. Verses 13, 14, and 15 talks about those who are asleep. Asleep is a euphemism for believers who have died. And in verse 16, he makes this very clear by saying, in verse 16, that they are the dead in Christ. Now, to be asleep is not soul sleep. This is not a peaceful sleep apart from the Lord when you die. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that to be absent from the body as a believer is to be home with the Lord. Meaning the instant that a believer dies, he or she is in the presence with God and in conscious fellowship with him. So to be asleep is simply a symbol. It's a picture of a physical body lying in the ground waiting for the Lord to return and wake them up, giving them a resurrection body. It's a symbol for the dead who will rise upon the Lord's return. So the answer is a no, the dead in Christ will rise. But the question is... What about cremation? What about bodies that are lost at sea? What about any believer who's died that did not receive a proper funeral? Are they somehow at a disadvantage? Will they miss out on any future kingdom blessings? Will they miss out on the resurrection to come? And the answer again is no, they will not. And again, the answer is in verse 16. The dead... In Christ will rise. Now Paul loves that phrase in Christ. It's one of his most powerful theological explanations of our relationship with Christ. To be in Christ is the clearest possible way to describe the closest possible relationship we can have. You can't be any more related or united to a person except being in them. One scholar put it that Christians are those whose total existence, life and death, is in and through and for Christ. Therefore, all believers, all believers will be resurrected and receive a resurrection body at the Lord's second coming. In fact, the resurrection of the body is one of the new covenant blessings that Christ secured for us by his death and resurrection. In fact, Paul backs up the truthfulness of this hope in Christ's return and the bodily resurrection. He backs it up in the historicity of the Lord's first advent. If you look at verse 14, he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again... Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What he's saying is since we know and believe that Christ has come and died and rose again, we can know for certain that he will return and you will rise with him. Isn't that good news? It is. It's sweet to the soul. In this word, hope, in verse 13, so that you as others do not have or have no hope. This word hope in the Greek is elpis, and this is a precious word, elpis. Elpis is not this kind of hope. Elpis is never used by Paul to describe an attitude of endurance or wishful thinking. Think of the athlete after the game when he sank the winning shot and they came back from down by 20. And he says, we never lost hope that we would prevail. That's not the kind of hope Paul's talking about here. It's not wishful thinking. It's not enduring. Hope that Paul is describing, Elpis, it's tied to the assurance of God's promises. Elpis, the hope that Paul is describing, is our confident expectation that God will, in fact, do exactly as he said. Christ will return. The dead in Christ, those who are alive, will be raised to new life. We will receive A resurrection body. And be with him forever and ever. And be with one another forever and ever. We have hope. Concrete, real hope. Read with me verses 16 and 17. Which so clearly spell out the very moment. That we are not wishing will happen. That we are not willing will happen but we are waiting to happen. 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so... We will always be with the Lord. What are we to do with this hope in our lives, in the lives of this family of believers? We are to encourage one another. Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Paul's point in writing about the Lord's return and the resurrection, it was not to provide this precise timeline of events. And again, I have my opinions. Come talk to me after church. It was to provide a precise source of hope and therefore encouragement as we seek to live a life pleasing to God in the midst of this world spoiled by sin with Satan lurking about and death around the corner, this wind that we are constantly having to battle. It's to provide a concrete source of hope and encouragement. And so for us, Bethel, brothers and sisters in Christ, whether we we are struggling with our pursuit of sexual purity, or we are struggling to love one another, or we are struggling with the death and the loss of loved ones that we simply long to see the promised hope of Christ's return and our future bodily resurrection. It gives us a context to endure. It gives us a context to continue to engage more and more the direction God wants us to go. Why and how does hope do that for us? Because neither our struggle nor the brokenness is permanent. And nothing that we endure is wasted. Everything in our lives has a purpose and it's all leading somewhere to our Lord's return when we will be raised with Him to new life in a sinless, perfect body. To be with Him in His perfect kingdom Forever and ever. It's a fact. It will happen. And we who are. Caught up together with him. This word. In verse 17. Will be caught up together. It's. Apazo. Apazo is. To snatch. It's to take away forcefully. And this isn't. Merely the lamb returning to do this. In the second advent of the Lord, we see him returning as a warrior king. And we see that in verse 16 with this description of a cry of command. A voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. This is warrior kingdom language. And this word will be caught up is forceful. It's mighty. And what it teaches us is that there is no force on this earth that can prevent our warrior king returning and uniting us with him forever and ever in a perfect body. Let this hope shade our mindset as we endure, as we struggle to live a life pleasing to God more And more as we wait, trusting, knowing that He will return. Let this shade our whole mindset that Christ will be victorious. Our hope is a sure thing. Hold on to it, hold on to Him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as your children. all that we need you have provided in Christ we have the forgiveness of our sins we have a right standing with you we have the spirit who is leading us who is transforming us and we have this great promise Lord that your son will return the warrior king and snatch us up help us our great God as we endure To live a life pleasing to you. Teach us to walk in step with the Spirit. Teach us to have a mindset. Focusing on this hope. That's tied to your promises and nothing else. May we be people who demonstrate this hope. Who live out this hope. I ask Lord that you would fan to flame. This hope in our hearts. That it would define us as a people. Pray that you would comfort us with these words, Lord. May we be people who look to you, who wait for your son's return. And it's in his name we pray, amen.